Bible reading this morning is from Romans 3, verses 21 to 31, and you can find that in the Bibles in front of you on page 1,129. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No. Because the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. All right, thanks, Pip, and uh, good morning again. And can I say, this is one of those passages where you really want to have the Bible open in front of you, so even if you um, didn't open it for the reading, it'd be good to get it open to page 1129, because I'll be referring to it throughout. Uh, I'm going to pray as, as you do that, and then we'll get underway. Uh, Heavenly Father God, we thank you for these words and the life they've brought to so many millions of people down the centuries. And this morning, just give us um, an ability to love you with our mind and our hearts I'm sure that will profit us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, it seems to me that most of us like to be right. I reckon that's an uncontroversial thing to say. We like to be right. If you had the choice between being right or wrong about something, you'd always choose to be right. In fact, we not only like to be right, we like to be proven right, which is a lot easier um, these days with Google and smartphones, etc., etc. Because in the past, you could make wild and outlandish statements so I once had a friend try to convince me that cows have four hearts, one in each leg. And uh, it sounds ridiculous, but you just couldn't prove him wrong right there on the spot. But these days, if you're having that discussion, let's be honest, most of the time, those are discussions at late at night. You whip out your phone, you bang it into Google, and there you go. They don't have four hearts, one in each leg. They have four stomachs, or at least four chambers in their stomach, but definitely not four hearts. We prefer to be right about such things. I think that's uncontroversial. But some people just have to be right, don't they? Have you met people like that? They always want to be right, as if their existence as a human being depends on being right. You know, you're at the zoo, you just make what you think is a harmless statement that dolphins are likable creatures. Hang on a sec, where's my dolphin? My dolphin? Bring back that dolphin. Hey. Look at him, so happy. 
um, likeable creatures, but then Mr. Has to be right that you're standing next to pipes up and tells you that male dolphins can actually be quite vicious creatures. They've been known to keep smaller females as slaves. And 15 minutes later, you've heard everything there possibly is to know about dolphins because Mr. Has to be right watched a documentary on the National Geographic channel. Now, here's the thing. You saw the same documentary on the National Geographic channel. You were just saying they seem nice because that noise they make sounds happy. And they look like they're smiling, don't they? I mean, don't they? They do. But Mr. Has to be right has drained all the joy out of dolphins and you don't know what to do. Do you move on to the seals? Do you join the dolphins? You don't know. Now, most of us will know somebody who has to be right. But what if there was a way to be right? Not about trivial matters, but right with God, definitively, definitely. We have seen painfully over the last two weeks that rather than being right or mostly right with God, which is what our culture tells us, all of us, whether we're wildly debauched, morally upright or religious devout, religiously devout, are in a perilous position before God naturally. And yet, God has done something extraordinary, something connected to Jesus so that we can actually be right with him, with certainty. And that's what we'll be thinking about today in this latest installment in our series in the New Testament book of Romans, especially from chapter 3, verse 21 to 31 which Christian luminaries like Martin Luther have described as the most important paragraph ever written, or the, uh, the chief point and central place of the whole Bible. So no pressure then as we think about how we can be right with God. Well, friends, the Scriptures have a particular technical word for being, with right, uh, being right with God. It's the word righteousness. And so firstly, we need to understand what that means. So let's read together from verse 21. I invite you to join with me. Uh, but now, he says, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So for most of the past three chapters, which we've looked at over the last two weeks, the Apostle Paul has established we are all in trouble before God in our natural state. Okay, we're universally stuffed, we're without excuse, and you might remember the fairly depressing words that we looked at last week from chapter 3, verse 10. There is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God, that is naturally. All have turned away, they have together become worthless, there is no one who does good, not even one. It's not saying you're bad all the time. It's just saying that none of us are naturally good, not even the Jews, right? The recipients of God's promises of old can be declared righteous, that is right with God, on the basis of their obedience to the Old Testament law. They just can't. The Old Testament law, what he calls the law and the prophets there, points to this new way of righteousness. We'll see that next week. But as the Apostle Paul says in verse 20, no one is declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. The Old Testament law, it's not a checklist we keep, it's a benchmark we universally fail. It leaves us silent, without defense, with nothing to say. Which is why if you were reading the whole thing in one long go, there's a dramatic change in tone from verse 20 to verse 21 where we picked it up today. Because now a righteousness from God has been made known. It is accessible by faith 
not by obedience to Old Testament law, nor even by obedience to a, a moral, an upright moral compass. And it's certainly not accessible via Google search. It is a righteousness from God through faith in Christ. So really the, the question first is, what does this righteousness actually mean? And to understand it properly, you have to take your minds to the world of the law court, where there is a judge and there is a guilty person. So God is the judge. Guess who the guilty person is? It's you. Deborah's putting her hand up the back. It's me, it's me. Yes, it's you, Deborah, and it's us all, isn't it? Now, God is the judge, but for those with faith in Christ Jesus, he makes a legal declaration or decision that we are innocent rather than guilty. Now, he is the judge, so he gets to make the decision, and he's not blind or stupid, so he doesn't think that we've somehow magically become innocent rather than guilty, but he nonetheless declares that we are righteous and decides to treat us as if we were innocent rather than guilty. Quite extraordinary. We're going to find out uh, in a moment how he can do that. But for now, you just need to understand that's what we're talking about. And this is kind of how it works for us. Because none of us are righteous by ourselves, we've naturally all turned away. Each of us could be represented by a circle that's kind of just filled with lots of minor signs that indicates our legal guilt. Whether or not we feel emotional guilt or not, not the question. We're legally guilty because we all naturally turn away from God. Now, because Jesus died, our sins have been forgiven. So it's like all those little minor signs are wiped away, which is beautiful, isn't it? It's staggering if you think back upon your life and think you could be forgiven so all those minor signs are wiped away. But it's not enough because it only takes us to neutral, neither truly bad nor truly good. But because of Jesus' life and death, when God declares us righteous, he doesn't leave us neutral. He decides to treat us as perfectly right or good or innocent as Jesus was in his earthly life. So that we go not only from guilty to neutral, but from neutral to positive in one step. So that our little circles go from little minuses to neutral to pluses in a single step, not because we're naturally good people but because God the judge makes that decision or declaration for us. And that's why this announcement is so amazing. It's not just that people go from negative to nothing, but God looks at us and treats us as if we've gone from negative to positive, making a legal declaration that we are righteous because when he looks at us with faith, he treats us as if we were as positive and as pure as Jesus was. Friends, I've got to tell you, that is stunning. It's stunning. But that's the righteousness of God that comes by faith. Another word for it that you'll see in this passage is justification. But it means the same thing. God's legal decision to treat us as if we were as pure and perfect as Jesus was in his earthly life, though we are anything but pure and perfect, so that we are acceptable and we are right with God. Wow. Wow. Now, if we're to take verse 22 as kind of our stencil, our pro forma, our template, this righteousness, it says, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That's the verse. Well, we need to next work out how we access this righteousness. How, how can we possibly avail ourselves 
of God's legal decision that we are right with him because he treats us as if we were as pure and perfect as Jesus was in his earthly life. Well, you can clearly see from that verse that this righteousness, this extraordinary way we can be right with God is given through faith. It's available, it's accessed by putting our faith in Christ. And it's particularly important to understand this means we bring nothing to the table. All we need is need. All we must bring is nothing. In fact, baptism of a kid is like a perfect illustration. Mackenzie's not there going, there you go, God, I'm bringing all my moral goodness and all my community spirit. Now give me righteousness. All she needs is need. Given through faith. It's a perfect way to describe it because it shows us that it is a gift. You don't earn it. You don't deserve a gift. You don't contribute to a gift. As soon as you try to chip in for a gift, it's no longer a gift, is it? So this means we don't contribute moral performance or community spirit or church involvement or religious devotion. We don't slap any of those things down on the table saying, there you go, God, there's my contribution. Now please give me the righteousness I deserve because we don't deserve it. That's why it's called a gift. As it turns out, relying on our moral performance, our community spirit, our church involvement, our religious devotion, whatever, a uh, pretty shaky thing because the Apostle Paul has already established that none of us is truly good in our actions, words, and motives. And it's a highly questionable contribution when in the next verse, verse 23, the Apostle Paul says there's no difference for we all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all sin falling short of the glory of God. And in fact, that idea of falling short invokes the metaphor of a bow and arrow. Got this uncle in Queensland. He's a bit of a character. Uh, he used to race motorcycles and he's got Harley Davidson tattoos on his arms and his legs and he lives in a caravan outside a property in Brisbane. Oh, sorry, on a property outside Brisbane. Now, the last time I saw him, I said to him, like, what you been up to? And he just looks at me and he says, bow hunting. I'm like, bow hunting? And, you know, hoping for further explanation. And he says that he goes out to the bush with his bow and arrows and he shoots wild pigs. Now, I know that wild pigs are pretty hard to stop with a gun, let alone an arrow. So he tells me about these arrows that he's got that sort of explode when they hit the pig and they bore a two-inch hole through the animal. That's how you stop a wild pig. And all the while I'm thinking, how is it possible that you are related to my mum. <laughs> you know, she's a good lady. I think she's watching now. Hi, mum. But you have a laugh with her, but she's quite proper. How could you two have possibly come out of the same womb? does not make sense. But the Apostle Paul says that our sin is like an arrow falling short. It, 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 just, it, it just doesn't hit its target. It just doesn't reach. It just doesn't measure up. And when you think about it, it doesn't really matter if it's a centimetre short or a mile short, there is a wild pig running at you. And it doesn't matter how far short we fall from the righteous requirements of God. You can be good, but is it good enough? Hence, the righteousness of God is accessible and has to be accessible only by faith in Christ. Not by our fall short offerings of individual moral performance, community spirit, or religious devotion, but by faith. Next, according to verse 22, uh, our template verse, this righteousness from God is given freely through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not given by our goodness, because we're not. It's also not given by some vague kind of belief 
in God. It's a very specific belief in the person and work of the Lord Jesus, which we see in verses 24 and then 25. So let's read them together. Actually from verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are all justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. In fact, it says there, we are justified or declared right with God through redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now, our culture uses the word redemption um, in a sort of cloudy way to mean something like, I've made up for a past mistake. I've redeemed my past errors or my past poor performance with better performance or better behavior. But the Bible uses redemption in a technical sense. And to understand it, you have to travel back in your mind to the ancient, say, Roman slave market. There's a picture of it here. The basic concept of redemption involves the payment of a price to release someone from a form of slavery or captivity. So in the Old Testament book uh, book of Exodus, Israel was redeemed from slavery in Egypt via the payment the shedding of the blood of an unblemished lamb. Or in the Roman slave market, first century slaves were released from captivity by the payment of a ransom price or a bond. Now when the New Testament says we have been redeemed, it is saying we are released from our slavery to sin and death and judgment via the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. His life was the ransom price that secures our release. And so we place our trust that Jesus' death has done just that. In fact, we can trust nothing other than Jesus' death to pay the ransom price to deliver us from our captivity to sin and judgment. We're now free from the penalty of sin. We are being freed from the power of sin in our lives. We will even be freed from the presence of sin in the life to come, but only because Jesus' death has paid that ransom price. What a cost! that sets us free. That's redemption. The passage in verse 25 also says that God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement, which is sometimes called propitiation. But to understand this idea, you've got to travel back to the temple, either pagan temples, but more properly, the temple in Jerusalem in the Old Testament. Didn't realise this, but if you look carefully, they had microphones all the way back then. Good to know that three of you are awake. Excellent. <laughs> See, back there, unblemished animals were offered in sacrifice to God for sin and guilt. And God's rightful, not capricious, but his rightful wrath was poured out onto the animal in place of the human being who brought the sacrifice. And it was absorbed by that animal, which meant God was no longer angry with the person. Their sin had been covered over. In these verses, on the cross, God poured out his rightful wrath that was meant for us upon Jesus instead so that Jesus absorbed the judgment that was due to us because of our sin and that means that God is no longer angry with us. Our sin has been covered and God's rightful wrath has been satisfied. We are declared right. We access the righteousness from God when we put our faith in Jesus' death to do just that, to absorb the rightful wrath of God. In fact, we trust nothing else. We can trust nothing else. No no penance, no past performance, no future moral improvement has the power 
the capacity to avert the just anger of God other than Jesus' sacrificial death. That's sacrifice of atonement. And so the righteousness of God, in which God the judge declares us to be as positive as Jesus was in his earthly life and treats us accordingly, means we are right with him. It's given through faith in Jesus Christ because all that his death accomplished. And finally, it's given to all who believe. Whatever your background, whatever your backstory, whatever you have done, whatever has been done to you, the righteousness of God being declared right with God is available through faith to all who believe. Do you know in the first century there was a big divide between Jew and Gentile Christians, that is Jewish and non-Jewish Christians. And the Apostle Paul says it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. In the 21st century, whatever your background, whatever your backstory Whatever you have done, whatever has been done to you, it still doesn't matter. This good news about Jesus, it will challenge you. It will shape you, sometimes painfully, as in the process is painful. Uh, it'll change you, no doubt. But it will also justify you or declare righteous everyone. Who believes and friends that's why we think it is truly good news well what does this mean for us three uh, three things at least I'm sure there's more it means the justice of God is revealed it means the anger of God is removed and it means humble faith of humans is required you might have spotted a potential problem with all this righteousness stuff, this idea of being declared right with God. Did you spot it? How can we possibly be declared righteous as Jesus was in his earthly life when everyone knows that we are not? And even if we pretend we're not that bad, in the quietness of the night when we can't get to sleep, we look out over our lives and we know, don't we? We know. How can it be that we are treated like Jesus when we have in fact turned away from God and continue to fall short of his glory? How, how can that work for God? In particular, how can God still be just if instead of judging our sin and unrighteousness, he treats us as righteous? Great question, smart people. Let's look at verse 25, 26. God did this, that is, sacrificed Jesus, to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. How does it work for God? How can it be just that unrighteous sinners of all descriptions can be considered righteous when we clearly aren't? When I lived in London, we rented a flat it had these rubbish pretend floorboards he bought from Ikea and no carpet and no vacuum cleaner. But we did have this massive rug in our main living area. And we had this landlord, a lovely Irish bloke, who you seriously could not understand a single word that he said. You know, you'd ask him to repeat himself and you couldn't understand him. 
you would ask him to speak slowly, and it actually made it worse. And after that, every time he said anything, I just smiled and said yes, and hoped for the best. And when he would come over to look at his flat, we would sweep all the dirt under the rug. It was the only option available, right? Now, is that what God does with our sin? Sweep it under the rug. Is that how it works for him? Well, the answer is no. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. He doesn't look the other way. He doesn't pretend it didn't happen. didn't see it. In Jesus' death, he judges our sin. Instead of judging us for our sin, he judged Jesus for our sin. He doesn't set aside his judgment. He sets it upon himself as Jesus voluntarily offered himself up on the cross. So our sins aren't swept away, but God rightly punishes them upon a willing son. It actually means God does not need an independent commission against corruption. It's perfectly just. Not only our sins, verse 25 says, even the sins of the people of faith committed well before Jesus arrived, all punished, past, present, future, in the person of Jesus. So God is both just, doesn't look the other way, doesn't sweep it under the carpet, and he is the justifier, the one who can possibly declare us to be right with him if we trust in Christ. In Jesus' death, the justice of God is revealed. And that's important to us, isn't it? Not only that, but I think uh, even better for us, in Jesus' death, the anger of God is removed. The, the right anger, not the capricious, the right anger. God is no longer angry with us. His anger has been turned away. God's punishment for our sin has been taken away, never to return again. Now, when you go fishing, you know what you're meant to do when you catch one of those ditty little fish? It's too small to keep. By the way, that's the only kind of fish I ever catch. Do you know what you're supposed to do? You take the hook out, you give that little fish a kiss on the lips, you throw it back into the water, and what does it do? It swims off, never to be seen again. God's wrath, his anger, his judgment at our sin and unrighteousness is like that fish that swims off, never to be seen again. When God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement, it turned his anger away so that he is no longer angry with all those who trust in Jesus. His judgment will not fall upon all those who trust in Jesus, not now and not in the future. Christians, this is such good news. Do you realize that God is no longer angry with us because Jesus has taken the wrath that we deserved and it is never to be seen again. Instead, when he looks upon us, he treats us like Jesus, declaring us to be righteous, not in ourselves, but in him. And if that doesn't make you burst out of your skin with joy, make some, I don't know, happy dolphin-like noises, maybe sing with gusto, then there really is something amiss in our spirits, isn't there? Well, lastly, the humble faith of humans is required. The justice of God is revealed, the anger of God is removed, but humble faith in humans is required. So it looks in verse 27 to 31, like the Jewish Christians, Jewish by background, Jewish by, uh, Christian by conviction, in the church there were boasting in their Jewish heritage or background. Paul says to them in verse 27, ain't no room for boasting. Not in yourselves, not in your heritage, not in anything you bring to the table. Remember, faith is simply the attitude of coming to God with empty hands. All you need is need. That requires humility. 
and leaves no room for boasting. If you want to boast in something, you boast in God, to whom the whole world is accountable, but who is also the saviour of everyone who believes, Jew, Gentile, whatever, whoever. Boast in him if you're going to boast in anything, which is another way of saying humble faith is required of us humans, for there are no grounds of pride. Well, friends, as we finish, we've had our head in lots of thought pictures, mind pictures today, haven't we? There's the courtroom where God is judge. There is the slave market where Jesus' death pays the ransom price. There is the temple where Jesus' sacrifice absorbs the wrath of God. Even the outback where our best deeds are just like arrows that fall short. Each of these mind pictures telling a part of the story. Though we like to be right, as we thought about at the start, we cannot naturally be right with God. We cannot obtain righteousness of our own. We can only be given it from God, being declared right with God being treated as pure and as positive as Jesus was because of all that Jesus did in his life and especially in his death. This righteousness, it's available by faith in which we humbly trust that Jesus' death deals with our sin, demonstrates God's justice and absorbs God's wrath. And it's available to everyone who believes. It is wonderful. It is truly wonderful. So I beseech you to trust in Jesus with all that you have, with all all of your heart and across all of your days. Well, let's give him thanks and praise now in prayer. Let's, Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we just praise you for the Lord Jesus, for his perfect life that he lived among us, for his sacrificial death that he died for us, that pays the price to set us free from the penalty of sin that absorbs your rightful wrath that would otherwise fall upon us. We praise you for your justice, that you don't just look the other way, sweep it under the carpet, under the rug. We praise you that you, your anger has been removed, so you are no longer angry with us. And we ask for forgiveness for any time in the pride of our hearts, we've, we've thought that we contribute something to it. But we give you praise that in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can be right and acceptable to you. And it's in his lovely name that we pray these things. Amen.